come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 176 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So for this episode here is going to be my St. Patrick's Day number four, as my double feature here is going to be quite interesting, and the best way that I can describe it, and actually with some of my mini-reviews, is that I've been watching a good number of franchise films, as the two featured reviews are going to be Scream 6. This one hit the theaters, and I knew that I had to check this out for this episode here, because I was trying to get out as quickly as possible, and I'm pairing that up with Leprechaun 5 in the hood. The only way I can really kind of describe this is I was saying franchise films that are both slasher-esque, I mean the one for sure, the other one one, a little bit looser there as so it's more like a creature feature but for many reviews my traverse of the three is the older one is going to be the beast from 20,000 fathoms and then I also watch Friday the 13th part three yeah, another franchise Hollywood Scarefest. this is the premiere edition that I have on a box set also children of the corn Genesis another franchise and then the last one I got to watch here is the silent film 1926 is Faust so I don't think there's anything else I need you to get to speed with here for this intro, so let me just say thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my older Traverse of the Threes movie for this week is going to be The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. This is from 1953. This is directed by Eugenie Laurie. It was written between Lou Morheim and Fred Friedberger. And this is actually from the short story by Ray Bradbury of The Foghorn. This is starring Paul Hubschmidt, Paula Raymond, and Cecil Kellaway. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. Currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being A ferocious dinosaur awakened by an Arctic atomic test terrorizes the North Atlantic and ultimately New York City. So this film is one that I learned about through a trailer on an old VHS tape that my parents had. It was playing before the movie started if memory served. I believe that I finally sought this one out thanks to my mother who likes older movies like this. So I'm now giving it a second watch for this segment here. And I think this is a good giant monster movie. 
We're getting a basic story here, and it's interesting that this feels like a cautionary tale to nuclear power. It even comes out a year before the original Godzilla does, and I've actually thought I read some trivia that that one was kind of pushed forward because of this movie. The bombing in the Arctic didn't create it, but it frees it. I'm gathering that the fear that comes from the power of this weapon is, you know, partially there. You could also see that this is an early eco-horror film. It would also fall in the run of movies in this era that feature giant monsters or animals as well. So since the best part of this is the creature, let me delve into it and the effects. The Beast was done by Ray Harryhausen, who was, you know, one of the best all time with stop motion photography. It looks amazing. That along with the miniature work is on point. You can tell it's fake, but I'll be honest, I'll take it over CGI. I was quite impressed. The cinematography should also be pulled in here as this helps with the magic of making it feel more real than it should be. So I give high marks. Then to the, you know, shift this back to the story. I forgot this was based on a short from Bradbury. I'd be curious to see what that features and if there's anything else that was, you know, fleshed out from it or like, I kind of want to know where the story ends and this movie kind of does its own thing. It was interesting to see that it was actually written for the Saturday Evening Post or that was where it first came out. I know that was the magazine due to its covers. I didn't realize that they would run a story like this, so I'm impressed. If I do have an issue here, the story is just lacking with what we get to put on the screen. It is mostly just a character of Tom trying to prove what he saw before it's too late and he is portrayed by Hub Schmidt. Now the last thing to go into is going to be a subtle bit with the monster. It is a dinosaur that was frozen in the ice. This was put into a state of suspended animation is what we'll end up kind of realizing what they're kind of playing with here. What I also like is that something I've actually recently heard as well. A byproduct is that it could be bad for humanity with the polar caps melting or that there are diseases that could be frozen in it that we don't have immunities to. This was a bit that where people that are exposed to the blood in this movie are getting sick. I love the subplot. All that factors in though is making the creature needing to be killed in a certain way so humanity doesn't die. I do appreciate the effort here. I think the only thing that would be left to go into would be the acting. I thought Hub Schmidt was good as our lead. He has a charisma about him. I also like that he's a scientist, so even though the people don't believe him, there is still respect there. I thought Paula Raymond as Lee Hunter is fine as a female lead who is helping him. I also like Kellaway as our oddball paleontologist. There's also a bit of humor that he brings. I also like Kenneth Toby, Donald Woods, Lee Van Cleef, and Steve Brody, who are all portraying you know, military men. I'd also say the rest of the cast was solid to round this out for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is a solid giant monster movie. It is from that era where we got films that feared atomic power, and I like that this one is a bit different what it does. The monster is great, and what Harryhausen does to bring it to life is amazing. I think that the filmmaking also helps here. If anything, I do think there could be a bit more to beef up the story. thought the acting was good, though. Other than that, I'd say this is a tight little film that flies by. I'd recommend this to fans of this era of cinema or want to see an early kaiju picture of sorts. So my rating here for The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And for my second mini-review here is going to be Friday the 13th Part 3. This is from 1982. This is directed by Steve Miner. It was written between Martin Kit Rosser and Carol Watson, while also being based on the characters from Victor Miller. Stars Dana Kimmel, Tracy Savage, and Richard Brooker. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Jason Voorhees stalks a group of friends who have just arrived to spend the weekend at a cabin near Crystal Lake. 
So this installment, I was actually later to. I know I saw this one on the movie channels growing up, but it didn't appear regularly as some of the others. I've now seen this one a few times in more recent memory to watch them all with a critical eye. And I also wanted to because Jamie didn't want to continue on at this time with watching these, so I wanted to check out the Blu-ray from my box set. So what I want to start off with here is that this one is actually filmed in 3D, which I'm not always the biggest fan of this format, but I do feel this one does some cheesy things with it. It doesn't ruin it, but it's one of those things that stuck out to me. The other thing is that this is more important as one of the earlier films, as this is where Jason gets his iconic hockey mask. I know there's some rumors as to who came up with it and why, but I feel like it's kind of something that needs to be honored because it is, you know, giving that iconic look. This one actually picks up uh, the next day or recently after from part two. As we have these, like, group of friends that show up to this cabin near the, you know, lake and everything like that. So one of the kind of issues that I have is that not everybody's necessarily fleshed out. Now, Chris is our lead is, and she's portrayed by Kimmel. Her backstory is interesting, and it also feels a little bit in of Jason's on top of that. She had a run-in with him a couple years ago. Now, she had some trouble returning to this cabin since then. So I do have a slight issue with what they're saying that Jason tried to do, as it doesn't really fit his backstory. I could also be reading into this a little bit too much as well. So also joining her is Tracy Savage as Debbie. There is her boyfriend of Andy, portrayed by Jeffrey Rogers. There is also his roommate of Shelly, portrayed by Larry Zerner. His blind date is Vera, who is Catherine Parks. There's some couple stoners that are joining them in Chili, which is Rachel Howard, and Chuck, who is David Katams. And then they also meet up there with Rick, who is Paul Kratka. Now, he is dating Chris. We get to know a little bit about everybody, but... The most one fleshed out is Shelly outside of the lead, so I'm not the biggest fan of his character, but, you know, he's kind of important for some of the things that go down here. Since I brought up the characters, I'll say the acting is pretty solid here. I think Brooker makes for a good Jason. He has a fitting look for it, his size fits and everything like that. I thought that Kimmel was, you know, fleshed out and made for a good final girl. Zerner's character is annoying, but that's what they're going for. And I must commend how everybody else plays their things. There's also some bikers in this that are kind of funny. Not really necessarily sure why that's the route they wanted to go, but I do think that works. I do also have an issue with the character portrayed by Kretka. He's quite pushy with Chris, and it comes off a little bit creepy. I do think it's part of the time, so I'm not really necessarily going to hold that against things here. I think this is paced well as well as edited. This has a lower, or has a good hour and a half running time, but it gets into it quickly, then we get a lull to introduce the characters, and then we start to see Jason picking them off, and I don't necessarily mind how it ends, but it's a similar jump scare that we've seen earlier in this franchise. thought that the effects are good, I think the blood looks solid. They're a little bit, I believe, cut, so I do kind of wish that there was, you know, allowed them to go a little bit more free reign with it. That's really my only complaint in that department. The soundtrack is also quite interesting here from Harry Manfredini. He decided to go a little bit more disco with this one, and I kind of dig it. It's not the best or the strongest in the series, but I do like what we get with that. And I think this is just, it's not my favorite in the series, but I think it's good. This is the iconic one in that Jason gets his mask. It also picks up where the last one left off. My only issue there is that the wound received in that previous film is not here anymore. I thought that this one does well in introducing the characters enough that I care about what happens to them. I think that Kimmel is a good final girl, though. Brooker is a solid Jason. I do have a slight issue with the backstory that they kind of are do using with Jason here, as it doesn't necessarily fit the lore. The editing and pacing were solid. The effects were cut a bit, but I can't hold it against it too much. I do think the ones that we see are good. 
Now the score was fine in my opinion and helped what this needed. As I said, this does good things and if you like the series, this one is a must see. So my rating here for Friday the 13th part three is gonna be an eight out of 10. So up next for you is gonna be a little bit longer of a mini review here only because of how difficult it is kind of go over and this is Hollywood Scarefest, the premiere edition. This is from 2007, it's not rated. This is a series of shorts that I believe appeared at the Scarefest Festival. So it's sitting on a 4.0 on IMDb, and there's only me and one other person who's rated on Letterboxd. So, I mean, if you take the average there, we're probably sitting at on around two stars or so. But this is an obscure collection of shorts that was compiled together into this anthology. There are quite a few of them on here, and I also question if I should watch this or not. Now, what was my deciding factor was that it seemed to be horror enough, and it's also part of a box set of DVDs that I'm working through, so I figured I might as well just knock it off. So the synopsis that I was able to find is a collection of terrifying shorts, films from the acclaimed Hollywood Scarefest Festival. Blending horror, fantasy, and sci-fi, the directors of these award-winning shorts prove that terror comes in many forms. So I thought the best way to break this down and to go into everything is to do each short individually. And my final score will be the average as well. So our first short is borrowing heavy from Mark Hamill's segment in Body Bags. We have Tom Hamilton, who is portrayed by Josiah Paul Hemis, is getting his eyes worked on. He went blind, and what they put in gives him digital sight. This makes for gags, as he has a remote that can change how he sees things, making his wife into like a Hispanic soap opera for a bit. Star that soap opera star. There are things that need to be resolved though, and the truth of how he ended up blind. So for this one, I think the acting is fine. It fits the budget they're working with, and it's also interesting that this short feels like a precursor to the one I believe it's VHS2. I highly doubt that Adam Wingard saw this and decided to take the idea. This makes for an interesting world we are in that we don't know what's real or not, and I'll credit the visuals as this is a perfect length as well. So the next short is Horla, which I guess is based upon a short story from Guy D. Malpassant. This is one that's artsy and filmed in black and white. There's a painter who is having a block. His name is Arnie, portrayed by Shaw Wheeler. He meets his new neighbor of Sally, portrayed by Cynthia Hopkins, and they hit it off. Things get weird, though, when he believes there's something living in the wall of his kitchen. It might be him dealing with night terrors and seeing a shadow person, or it might be more real than that. So there's another one that was intriguing. It is following a familiar story of trying to figure out what's real and what's not. It comes off quite pretentious being in black and white. I don't hate it though. I am interested to read the short story to see what's based off of it and what they kind of made up for this short. Another one that did not stay its welcome and builds to the climax and the acting also fits the budget for me. The next was one called Recharge. This is set in the future. A man wakes up and goes to work. He is portrayed by William Neal. What is odd is that he's attacked by people in gas masks. There's also like a big brother angle where a camera watches him as he works. We get an interesting commentary here that we can see as capitalistic and maybe our villains aren't as bad as we think. So we're getting another one here that's filmed in black and white. What is interesting with this one is that I noticed how stiff the acting was. That makes sense as to a reveal later and I can appreciate that. This is the first one that I think has an interesting premise that could be fleshed out into more. There are ideas here that go a bit deeper that intrigued me. Not great, but working in the confines of their budget, it pulled my curiosities. So the next one is ahead of its time as well, and it's called Cellular. Regardless, it is pairing up a man who is constantly on his phone. It is to the point where he's ignoring things around him. When the battery is dying, it sends him into a panic to recharge. Now there is a change that comes over him when this is done. 
So this is one that's a solid concept and allegory about how we are glued to our phones. This is even before smartphones, so I give even more credit here. The acting is fine. No one in it stands out. The visuals that are bringing the punch are the strongest. Now, the cinematography here is a bit muddy. We're not working with the greatest equipment from what I could tell. I still think this is carrying a message that it's ahead of its time. So then up next is Last Stop Station. We have a guy driving, and we see that he's low on gas. It is also night out. I believe he is Jim Wicker, portrayed by Andy Kumpan. He sees a sign for gas, and then when he arrives, the workers might be something unworldly. They give him the gas he needs, but demand cash. Now, we get another one here that has promise. My issue with this one is that they decide to do here is a bit odd, and they try to almost go comedic. Cinematography isn't great, but I think they do well with framing things to make them look more real. Creature design is good. I was impressed and creeped out there. I'd say the acting was fine. It again fit the budget that we're working with. So then I'll go over to Static. This one has a young woman in bed and she wakes up. What she sees on her television is her. This is only the beginning of the creepiness as she might not be alone and the lines of reality are blurred. Another one that I thought was a perfect length. There is a reality bending feel to this one as we don't know what is real and what is perceived by our character. This plays on a fear of mine when this creature appears. I say the cinematography is good. The acting fits for what they needed and it isn't a bad short by any stretch. So then our last one is called Another Dimension and actually my favorite of the group. This one has an angry man stuck in traffic. He has a new cell phone that he uses to call home. His daughter answers and reveals that her mother is in the bedroom with her uncle. Her father states they don't have an uncle by that name and things take a turn though as wires might be crossed. Now we're getting another one here that I think is solid. The title was something that went in the back of my head as things play out. I do find it interesting that we're getting a child relaying things to her father who is stuck in traffic. We don't know if what she's saying is true or that she doesn't have the words to convey it properly. I do think the acting is good, cinematography is solid, and this is a well-made one overall. It does not say it's welcome, and it might have the best stinger of all. So in conclusion here, these are fine short films. They're all working within their budgets that are lower, but there weren't any that completely I hated my time with. Do I think they could have done a bit more with polishing? Yes, but I'm also critiquing others who got up and made these where I haven't. I can't recommend this though unless you enjoy micro-budget cinema and appreciate the work of independent people like this. So my rating here for Hollywood Scream Fest is going to be a 5.5 out of 10, and that is the average of all the shorts together. And then my next mini review is going to be Children of the Corn Genesis. This is from 2011. This was written and directed by Joel Siosen. This stars Kellen Coleman, Tim Rock, and Billy Drago. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.6 on IMDb and a 1.6 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, a young couple try to free an imprisoned child and with catastrophic results. So this is one that... I picked up a while ago on DVD and hadn't rushed to watching it. I decided to finally give this one a go since the Children of the Corn franchise popped up on my letterbox feed of ones of like franchises that I was close to finishing, just hadn't as of yet. So I was intrigued when I saw that Drago starred in this since he's an actor that I know of. He's usually decent and I was kind of curious as to where the sequel would go. So for this one here then, we start, I want to start with a continuity. Now, I don't remember anything from the last film that I saw in the series, which was Children of the Corn Revelations. That was the seventh in the series. What I realized while doing this review was that Revelations is the last book of the Bible, and this movie's subtitle is Genesis, which is the first book. 
Now we have a perverted version of Christianity is used here, as well as a pagan and almost Lovecraftian element of he who walks behind the rose. The only continuity I see here is, to the original movie is that this takes place the opening segment right after the events of that first one. So even though that is the case, I don't necessarily know what we're getting here per se. Kind of falls in line with it. I don't mind it though. What we have here that happens in the beginning, I will reveal that the main character of Cole, who was the soldier that returned from war, is actually Preacher. Played by a different character, of course, when he's younger, but is now Drago. Now, he survived and was touched with what happened there. This is then a curse that has followed him to the California desert. The fear here is that it could spread anywhere, technically. As far as what we're getting into the sequels, I can run with us ideas. It works better than some of the other premises. This again, though, I feel like we had a screenplay and it was worked into being a Children of the Corn story. And to be honest, what I'm kind of giving you here, I'm bridging this gap here. It's not ever established in the movie. Now that I've said my piece there, we are questioning of who the villain here of this movie is. Preacher comes off as odd. He's a hermit and is isolated. We at once see him as the bad guy. There is this angle of him abusing this child. Now, the main character of Allie, who is portrayed by Coleman, is convinced, and Tim, who is portrayed by Rock, sees evidence that brings him around. We're also getting this angle of maybe this child being kept as evil. This made me think of the segment from the Twilight Zone movie or The Ring with Samara. I like that we blur the lines because it could technically be both here. Now, there's also the idea of blurring the line of reality. Tim tells Allie that Helen, who is portrayed by Barbara Nedjovjakova, might have mispronounced that, so I do apologize, but Helen is the wife to Preacher, and she says that, now Tim tells Allie that she came on to him. This is the right thing to do. Allie is informed by Preacher, though, that they went much farther. He saw what happened there. Did we see it all the way through since it does cut away, or are we supposed to believe Tim? Now, this sows the seed of mistrust between this couple. Allie also tells a story to Preacher about how she had a miscarriage with her first pregnancy. Preacher claims to have seen into the truth inside of her soul and that Allie had an abortion. This pits our two leads against each other once again, and we don't know the truth, and I did like this aspect. So that's about the extent what I can say for positives. I think that this movie is missing connecting items for it to fully work. Why is the child cursed? Cole was the adult when things went down with him in the beginning, so why did it follow him to California? Since to my knowledge, that was the first time the curse is getting out and going to a new place like this without actually having somebody from the area to bring it there, we need a bit more. There's also the idea that Helen was pregnant before marrying Preacher. I feel like this idea was that the original story had been you know, shoehorned into the Children of the Corn mythos for this movie here. Also, how things play out late in the movie don't make a lot of sense either. I need more there as well. So there isn't much more for the story I can delve into, so I'll go over to the acting. I thought that Coleman and Rock were fine. Drago has a good look to be the stoic preacher who is creepy. I don't even mind Nedjil Jakova, even though there isn't a whole lot there that she can work with. She shows off her body a bit in a seductive way, and it feels like the only reason that we have her here. I did like the cameo by Dwayne Whitaker. The children in the movie are kept in the background, which I think is a kind of a good thing because children acting can be hit or miss. So overall, I'd say the acting was fine. It doesn't stand out, but I also didn't necessarily have any issues with it, and it didn't necessarily need to. The last thing to go into would be the filmmaking. The cinematography is fine. It doesn't stand out, and they do well in setting up how far into the desert we are, so it feels hot, and the isolation there is good. 
The effects are limited. They do go CGI at times. It doesn't look great. Thankfully, they don't use a lot of it, so I do appreciate that. I did like what they do with the child and the powers in the end, so I thought that was creative. Other than that, the soundtrack was fine for what was needed. So in conclusion, I think we have some good elements here. We're just lacking things to bring them together fully for me. I'd say that our core cast is good enough for what we needed. The filmmaking is fine, doesn't stand out. I'm shocked that this is one of the better Children of the Corn films coming in as an eighth installment. This isn't great, but so don't come in expecting that. This is just an over average flick in my opinion. So my rating here for Children of the Corn Genesis is going to be a 5.5 out of 10. And for my final mini review of this week is going to be Faust. This goes by the original title of Aini Deutsche Volsenjix, which I actually think is like a folk tale or something like that, a German folk tale. So this is from 1926. It's directed by F.W. Murnau. The titles are written by Gerhard Hauptmann and then Hans Kaiser. And then this is from the play by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. So this is a drama fantasy horror film that is from germany it is currently sitting on an 8.1 on imdb and a 4.1 on letterbox with the synopsis being the demon mefesto wagers with god that he can corrupt a mortal man's soul so this is a movie that i decided to watch as it's the next film on the letterbox top 250 horror movies list that i hadn't seen when i settled in to watch this i realized this was directed by marnau who did one of my favorite silent films in Nosferatu. I was curious to see what he'd do with this classic tale here. So I want to start is that I've never read the source material, but I'm familiar with it. It's a classic story where people are talking about striking up a deal with the devil. Now, I don't know if this tale is what we get here is the full story or things were added to make this movie, but how things play out is quite interesting. So where I want to start then would be this bet that is made between God through this archangel with Mephisto. So the Archangel is portrayed by Werner Feuterer, and then Mephisto is portrayed by Emil Jennings. And I should also say that this stars Ghost to Ekman, Jennings, and Camila Horn. I actually realized I never did that till just now. But get back to what I was saying is that this seems odd to me that God would make a bet since it should go against religion. This does seem a bit more in line with the old testament version of god though he could be vengeful and even a bit hubris about things it also seems to me that the deck is stacked in his favor we are getting the idea here that good triumphs over evil now from there i want to talk about faust and the deal he makes shall I say faust portrayed by ekman i can't blame him for turning his back on god and science when he cannot help the people around him he takes a deal for a good reason the problem I then see is with the townspeople. He is helping them and they shun and attack him because he has abandoned their faith. They become the villain here. In turn, they force him to take part in the joys of the flesh. He is made young and do whatever he wants from there. Again, this feels like because he's attacked for doing good, why not live for yourself? The problem here becomes a turmoil he puts the Duke of Parma and even worse, the life of Gretchen. Should also say here that the Duke of Parma is portrayed by Eric Barclay and then Gretchen is portrayed by Horn. This is where Faust becomes a villain to me. Also, he isn't given the whole truth from Mephisto. This then goes into not trusting the devil as well. I'm not sure if there's any more that I want to go into for the story, so let me get over to the visuals. I didn't realize that Fantasia borrowed from this, like the original one. My favorite segment is legit something we get early into this movie with a giant Mephesto around a large structure in town. It looks amazing. I'd say the rest of the cinematography is also good. It is impressive for early cinema. The miniature work is good, so I will give credit to the effects there. Even making Ekman look like the 
old version, which is the true Faust, is impressive. I know I said visuals, but to finish out the filmmaking would be the soundtrack. I don't know if this is the original score that was synced up or not. It works for what was needed, though. So the last thing I'm going to go into would be with the acting. I thought I saw somewhere that at the time this came out, people did not like Ekman's performance. He did good, in my opinion, taking on the dual roles here. He is the wise old Faust, and then he gets scorned, so then we see the younger version living in the sins of the flesh. Both were solid. Jannings is a great villain in Mephisto. The look they give him is perfect. I thought Horn was good as his virtuous Gretchen. I feel horrible for her, and what she goes through is none of her fault. Outside of her just being pretty and caught the eye of Faust. You know, nothing more than that. I'd also say that Frida Ricard was good as the mother. William Dieterle is good as Valentine, who is Gretchen's brother. We also get Yvette Galbert, who is Martha, who I take it as a witch, and she's also Gretchen's aunt. Other than that, I thought that Barclay, Hannah Ralph, Fetur, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. So in conclusion, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie. It tackles issues that were both relevant at the time and still can be argued today. That is impressive for a movie that is almost 100 years old. The visuals are amazing, which are great for how old this is as well, acting fit for what was needed. I'm intrigued even more now to read the source material to see what was in there and what is added for the film. If you're interested in cinema of the era, definitely give this one a watch. It's an important piece in my opinion, I'm glad that I could take it off my list. So my rating here for Faust is going to be an 8 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. It's for you. Strange that you and I have never spoken on the phone. This is long overdue. What is this place? A shrine. Did you miss me? He's gonna keep coming after us. Maybe he gets to win this time. We've got to lure him in. And we execute him. hear you're a horror fan it's been said and for my first featured review on this episode is going to be scream six this is from here in 2023 it was directed between matt bentinelli open and tyler gillette this was written by james vanderbilt and guy Busick, while also being based on the characters created by kevin williamson this stars melissa barra jenna ortega and courtney cox while also featuring Jasmine Savoy Brown, Mason Gooding, Dermot Moroni, Jack Champion, Josh Sagara, Liana Libartaro, Devin Nakoda, Hayden Penetary, Tony Revolori, Samara Weaving, Andre Anthony, Henry Zierney, Thomas Kedrot, Barry Morgan, and Jenna Wheeler Hughes. This is an horror mystery thriller film that is from a co-production of the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, the survivors of the last Ghostface killings leave Woodsboro behind and start 
a fresh chapter in New York City. So this was a movie that I figured was coming after I saw the last one. I didn't love it upon leaving the cinema for the previous one, but I did come to appreciate it more with a second watch. This is a franchise that I don't love, but was a huge fan of the first two movies when they first came out. So I was still appreciative of what they were kind of doing as there isn't a bad movie as of yet in this franchise, in my opinion. I mean, the worst one that I have thus far was Scream 3, and I still have that one as an above average movie. So before I get into this one itself, let me do some featured notes as our writers and directors were all associated with the previous one. So first I'll look at Bentinelli Open. As I brought him up last year, as I said, with the previous movie, as I've seen five of his 12, all are in genre. I've seen his segment in VHS, his segment in Southbound, Ready or Not, as well as the Scream movies. The only one that I haven't is his feature of Devil's Do. Then his co-director of Gillette has 11. I've seen five, and they are the same ones with his co-director. Moving to our writers, first is Vanderbilt, who I did bring up as he wrote the previous installment, as I was saying. He has 17 projects. I've seen nine. His three in horror are the Scream films and Darkness Falls, which I've seen all of these. Then the other writer is Busick. He has six movies. I've seen three. In horror, he has five. I've seen both Screams as well as Ready or Not, and it does look like he is writing the next Final Destination movie, which looks to be number six, as well as something called Reunion, which I don't believe either of these two are out yet. Well, I know the Final Destination one. I'm not sure if Reunion is out or not yet, but I don't believe it is. Then to move over to her cast, I'll start with Bara. She has 14 films. I've only seen the Scream movies from her, but she actually has five that are in genre. There is Bed Rest, God's Country, and Your Monster. Now, the last two I don't think are out yet because there isn't a poster on Letterboxd, but I haven't heard of Bed Rest until now. Then her sister in the movie is Ortega. Now, she's an actress that I've been bringing up a lot lately, and she seems to be everywhere. I've seen seven of her 27 movies. Out of horror, she was in Iron Man 3 that I've seen. I've seen her, though, in Insidious 2, The Babysitter, Killer Queen, Studio 666, my favorite movie of last year in X, and then the Scream movies. So total, she has eight in the genre, and I know American Carnage is one that's on my list because she's in that one. I believe that's out or it's coming out soon. And then she's in something called Y2K, which I don't believe this one is out as of yet. Then lastly, I'm actually going to look at Brown. Now, she has 13 films. I've only ever seen the Scream films from her, but she her first in genre was something called Sound of Violence, which I have heard of, but I haven't seen. And now she also has Green Bank that I'm guessing is once again not out as of yet. So on for this movie here, we start this off with Laura Crane, which I actually am realizing is probably a nod to Psycho. But this is portrayed by Weaving. Now she's meeting a guy at a bar from a dating app. There are issues with the guy that she's meeting trying to find the place though. Now she goes outside to help him with this version of the opening. It then follows Jason Carvey, who is portrayed by Revolery. Now he goes back to his place where he has an interesting surprise. Now as Jason makes his way back though, we see that he passes Tara Carpenter, who is portrayed by Ortega. She is going to a frat party with Mindy, who is portrayed by Brown. And then Mindy's girlfriend is coming with him of Anika, portrayed by Nakoda. And then Mindy's brother is also joining him, Chad, who is portrayed by Gooding. Now, also joining them is Ethan, portrayed by Champion. And Tara is struggling since her sister Sam, who is portrayed by, of course, Bara, moved there with them and is overbearing after what happened. Now, Sam is in a therapy session while the this group is away. She is seeing Dr. Christopher Stone, who is portrayed by Zierney. 
He wants her to open up with what she's repressing, and when she does, this scares him. He doesn't feel equipped to help her with her issues. Now, she goes back to her apartment to learn from their roommate of Quinn, portrayed by Liberto, that Tara went to a party. Now, Sam shows up there, saving her sister from going upstairs with a jerk. Now, Chad also stepped in to prevent it, as there might be a little bit of feelings between these two, as in Tara and Chad. Now, on their walk home, Sam is accosted by a girl who believes that Sam is a psychopath who got away with murder. There's a whole website that is Woodsboro Truther. Now, they're out to prove that Sam is the real killer and that she framed who was actually branded. Now, the girl who threw the drink in her face also recorded the interaction, but she strategically edited it to cut out what provoked the whole incident. Now, when murders around this friend group start up again, they have others that are pulled in. Now, Gail Weathers, once again portrayed by Cox, lives and works in New York City. So she gets involved. Quinn's father works for the NYPD. He is Detective Bailey, portrayed by Mulroney. And he is assigned to the case. Now, Sam has a crush on Danny Brackett, who is portrayed by Sagara, who is her neighbor. Kirby Reed, portrayed by Penitary, also rejoins his group as a reunion of Woodsboro survivors. Mindy points out that new rules are here. Since we are now into a franchise where the deaths are bigger, there are more of them and no one is safe. Everyone is also a suspect. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the characters a bit here for you as I did what I could to dance around without going into spoilers since I saw this on the opening Thursday. My initial thoughts are walking out of the theater that I like this one more than the previous. I'm not sure if it's a change of scenery or just settling in more with this new group, but I like it. This one feels like our returning characters aren't as safe. And I mean, there's not that many of them in this one. And it could also be that Sidney Prescott, you know, good old Nev Campbell didn't return. That situation is sad as to the reason due to budgetary and not wanting to pay her, but it also feels like they didn't have to cater to protect her either. Now, Gail references her and what they say makes sense. I almost wish they would have used that in the last movie, but I digress as she is such an iconic character. Now, starting with the positive, this lives up to what Mindy says about a franchise. They go bigger with the body count and the kills are brutal. There were a few times where I audibly said something with being impressed with certain kills. I'll go ahead and pull the effects in here. This one I think did what the previous one does with how vicious the deaths are. I'm not a gorehound by any stretch, but I can still appreciate it. I know this used CGI for parts. This is also practical as well, and I think they work well together. I should also state that cinematography helps with hiding what they need to with filming and framing. Then moving from this, I'm not going to spoil what the reveal is like I said, but I was wondering what they were going to do here with the killer. I did guess part of it, and this movie is taking a hard look at the franchise as a whole. What is interesting is the meta aspects are within the world of the movie. There are series of movies, of course, that are based off the different murders that happen in Scream and its sequels. Of course, you know the Stab films. This one is bridging the gap once more to connect them. Bringing back up the speech that Mindy gives, it lays out potential motives for each of the characters. Now we have like Ethan being the weird roommate who disappears at times, Danny being the guy across the way, Quinn is also new to the group, and then we have Anika and the other new people here could intentionally get close to try to kill them. Quinn flips this saying that their trauma of surviving an ordeal could have made them snap. I like the thought that was put in here and you know, kind of making it where it might make us have you know more potential suspects and everything like that, especially with returning characters. Now, another critique I've seen is that this is just remaking Scream 2, and I get the argument. 
this takes place near a college campus like that other one did. We have set pieces that are legit mirrors of the older movie, which I did appreciate. There are times as well where it's borrowing story elements as well. Pieces of this didn't necessarily work for me, but on the whole, I thought it was fine. It did enough for me to set it itself apart. Since it referenced that other movie, I also give credit. So it's pretty much being like, I understand that people are going to say this and this is why it's not. And I think that's clever. So that should be enough. So I'm going to go over to the acting now. Our two leads are good in Barra and Ortega. Now I'm a big fan of the latter and it's good that we got more of her here because she kind of disappears for stretches when she's in the hospital in the previous movie. I think they play well off each other. For Barra, they are trying to blur her psyche once more. And I don't know if that works for me, but it also doesn't ruin it. I thought Brown and Gooding are solid to bring back. And I don't mind bringing in Mulroney, Champion, Sagara, Libataro, Nakoda, Zirni, Revolori, and Weaving. I could use a bit more of that last one, but I also digress. What they did with Cox and Penitary was fine as well. The acting is solid across the board. There were parts that were awkwardly written once again that make me cringe. I do come to expect that being that far into the franchise though, and that's kind of what I've come to expect with these movies as well. So there's a ton of trivia. I'm not going to do it all. I'm going to kind of go through some of the like shorter ones here. This was greenlit on February 3rd, 2022, three weeks after Scream was released. First acting credit for Penitary in five years. This one is actually the first time that Courtney Cox and Roger Jackson, that's the voice of Ghostface. Now, they actually have been in all six films, but this is the first time they actually interact on the telephone. This is the first one to be shot outside of the United States, taking place in Montreal, Canada for the filming, New York City for the movie. First Scream film without Sidney Prescott and David Arquette, of course. It's also kind of interesting is that there's somebody in this movie dresses Mojo Jojo from Powerpuff Girls and Roger L. Jackson actually voiced his character from that show. As Randy intercepted Gail's intended Ghostface call in Scream 2, this marks the first Scream film where she actually receives a call as I was saying. Um, date rape Frankie asks Tara if she wants to be part of the Omega Beta Zeta sorority or if she is part of it. This would be the New York chapter which is the same one that Cece who was Sarah Michelle Gellar in Scream 2 actually was a part of. In the trailer, Ghostface is seen using a shotgun. In Kashi, McNor and the other killers' unwritten rule of resorting to guns only when they unmask themselves. This is the longest film in the franchise. Jenna Ortega and Samara Weaving were both in The Babysitter Killer Queen. This is the third film in the series to take place outside of Woodsboro after Scream 2 and Scream 3. This is the first film where the numbered title is in Roman numerals. This one got a 3D release, which I actually didn't even mention. I did watch it in 3D. I don't necessarily know if you need to see it. It doesn't add a whole lot. I just did it just in case. In the movie, a character is watching in the beginning uh, is Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. I did know that. That's kind of a creative one there. They almost included a poster from X in Tara's room, but decided against it. I'm glad they did that. Laura, Samara Weaving's character, Laura Crane, shares a name with Sydney's alias Laura that she was using when hiding in Scream 3 and her last name is obviously Marion Crane like I thought from Psycho. And then the last bit of trivia that I'm going to do here is that the knock at Samantha's therapist door is the same audio reused from X which was performed by director Ty West. West previously worked on VHS with the writing or the directing team as well. So then in conclusion here 
I enjoyed this movie more leaving the theater than the previous one. I like what they're doing with the characters, and if they decide to continue following them, how they handle them is good, and I also feel like they pull their punches, though, in this one, like they did in the previous one at times, when it comes to certain people. This movie does go brutal, though. There is a story here that makes sense to me, and I like what they do to incorporate the previous movies. The acting is solid across the board. If I have an issue, it gets cringy at times with the dialogue. I think that I have this on the upper end of the franchise, though. And I'd recommend watching this if you're a fan of the series. And my plan is to rewatch this one since Jamie couldn't come to the theater with me due to our daughter. So I'm hopefully going to get a rewatch in and get her to see this with me because she did seem pretty excited at first and was bummed that she couldn't. So my rating here for Scream 6 is gonna actually going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section since it's so new. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over the trailer of my second featured review. When Mac Daddy discovers a magic flute, it's all I want right here. <laughs> he becomes the richest man in hip hop. Hey, get these losers out. But when three young rappers, kind of like Robin Hood, <laughs> say we're going to be robbing in the hood, <laughs> stumble onto his musical treasure, everyone will have to pay the piper. Unhandy gold, you thieving hoods. You got more loot than Tiger Woods. <laughs> They got the flute. We got to get that back all part itself. He's mean. Did somebody say blow? <laughs> what kind of voodoo shit you boys into? He's green. Curious aroma. That's the bomb right there. The bomb? Ah, the bomb. He's down. Does she meet with your approval? Sit down, my healthy Philly. You're about to meet a club named Billy. Come and let me lay hands upon your sinful creature. <laughs> What's that? It's rap. And then you take this and wrap it around your ugly ass. Warwick Davis. Ice tea. But Herald Isle to your place in the hood, and the man of green comes to do no good. You know who the left is the real OG. Got your ass! <laughs> we don't go down without a fight, right? Right? Right. Ah! Leprechaun 5. Size doesn't matter when you're still the man. <laughs> And for my second feature review is going to be Leprechaun 5 in the Hood in honor of St. Patrick's Day. This is from 2000. It was directed by Rob Spira. The screenplay was written between Doug Hall and John Huffman. These are based upon the characters created by Mark Jones. And then the story was come up by William Wells, Alan Reynolds, Spira, and Hall. This movie is starring Warwick Davis, Ice-T, and Anthony Montgomery, while also featuring Rashawn Nall, Red Grant, Dan Martin, Lobo Sebastian, Ivory Ocean, Jack Ong, Bareem McKnight, B.B. Drake, Donna M. Perkins, Dea Vida, Chloe Hunter, Lori J. Jones, Eric Mansker, Stephen M. Porter, and Badass. So this is an action comedy fantasy horror music film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.7 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, when three rappers want to get even with a pimp, they accidentally unleash a leprechaun who goes on a killing rampage in the hood. 
So this is a movie that I remember when it hit the movie channels, but I had never watched it. I feel like I saw parts of this one and it sounded like low budget trash, reflecting that's a harsh judgment without seeing it. And it is odd that I enjoyed all the movies in the series up until this point to an extent. So I decided to watch this to continue on with my tradition of watching the next movie in line for this one until I've completed all that. And I should also clarify, I liked part four when I was a kid. It definitely was one that I realized not very good as the older I got. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes and I'll start with the director of Spira. He has helmed nine films. I've seen two. Both are in horror with this and Bloody Murder 2. He also directed the original Witchcraft film from 1986. And as a writer, he has two. I've only ever seen this one, and his other one looks to be a crime drama film that might be pretty sleazy of Call Girl. Then to Huffman, he has two credits. This is the only one in horror that I've seen. He also did do Conviction with Omar Epps, which is not a horror film. Over to Hall, he has two credits. He did this one, and then it looks like he took time to work on TV before coming back to do White Men Can't Jump from this year. I didn't even know that was being made. Then there is Wells, which is his only credit. Same thing for Reynolds. So then going over to the cast, I'll start with Warwick Davis. I brought him up last year for the previous Leprechaun movie. I'm now at 24 of his 63 total for 38%. And I am now at 6 of 9 for horror. These are the others in the series that I've seen, minus Leprechaun 2, Back to the Hood. And I haven't seen Small Town Folk or St. Bernard as of yet. And then I should also point out that due to watching... This many of his movies, he is actually tied for my tied for 19th most actor I've seen at 24, as he's compared up there with I believe it was like Morgan Freeman and Elizabeth Banks. Could be wrong on that. I actually closed the app, so I'm not gonna go back and check. His co-star of Ice T, I've shockingly seen only two of his 117. I've seen the other guys, which isn't in genre. He's done five in horror. His first was Urban Menace, then this, followed by Hood Rat, Blood Runners, and Clinton Road. So last will be Montgomery. I've seen one of his 17. This is the only one that he's done in horror as well. So we start this movie off with a new rhyme that gives us a bit of backstory to the curse and the leprechaun's gold. It also incorporates elements including hood references. What I will give credit to here is that this is setting the tone. It's going to be cheesy, and that should be set up. So then we start in the past. We have Mac Daddy portrayed by Ice-T and his partner are searching for gold in the subway or something like that. They supposedly have a map and they have to break into the area that they're in. So Mac Daddy is starting to believe that his partner doesn't know what he's talking about. Now they accidentally knock down a wall to reveal a leprechaun statue. There's a necklace around its neck. Mac Daddy is looking for a golden flute, which I'm guessing he heard a legend about since that's all he wants from this. So the other guy takes off the amulet reviving the creature. He is... Played by, once again, the great Warwick Davis. They're attacked, and by chance, the necklace goes back on the neck, trapping the creature yet again. We then shift to the movie's present day. Now, we have Postmaster P, portrayed by Montgomery, Stray Bullet, portrayed by Null, and Butch, portrayed by Grant. They're a rap group that is trying to get into a competition that is taking place in Las Vegas. They're not very good, though. The person they're auditioning for gets upset when their set blows out his equipment. He is willing to give them another chance if they figure things out, though. So, now they shoot their shot with Mac Daddy, who has a successful record label. They audition there, and he sees potential. The trio wants to give positive messages in their songs, where Mac Daddy knows that won't sell. 
Postmaster P declines his offer, and this upsets his buddy of Stray Bullet. Now, they come up with another plan. Mac Daddy is a criminal, so they want to rob him. It takes some convincing, but the group agrees. In the process, the Leprechaun is freed. Postmaster P also gets the Golden Flute and experiments with its power. Our group now has to evade both Supernatural Creature and this gangster with his crew to survive. So that's going to be enough of the recap for the story and introduce the characters. Where I want to start is that this one is the fifth in the series, so where are we at with continuity? This one is ignoring the earlier one, as in four, but that one was set in the future and in space, so I'm not shocked there. I do believe this is falling in line with more of being a sequel to Leprechaun 2, as I know that one takes place in LA, like we get here. We did have an underground cave layer in that movie, so that's kind of where they find him in this one. I know the third one had this medallion as well, at least I believe it did. There is a new artifact introduced here though, so I'm willing to fall in line with movie logic without ruining things. You do kind of have to build on what you've done previously, so it's close enough. I also don't completely hate what we do here. This isn't a great modern black exploitation film, but I applaud them for having a predominantly black cast. We have a couple of actors I recognize with Ice-T and Dan Martin. Now he runs a pawn shop. That works for me. It's also kind of funny that we have Jack Ong here, who plays the owner of another pawn shop, because Asians also tend to be in modern takes of movies in the hood as well. Now, there is truth to the plight of the people that we are seeing here, as it isn't mocking them completely. Now, it is interesting to have Spira, who's directing here as he's white. There are also a lot of writers on this for the story, so I'm wondering if my issue actually comes from having too many cooks in the kitchen, why it doesn't flow well. Now what I mean there is like we have this rhymes from our rap group that feel very white. They're not very good and cheesy. Now I'll shift over to the acting here as well. I think that Ice-T embodies his pimp who is one of the villains. He's great in roles like this. Then we have like Montgomery, Nall, and Grant are all fine. They don't stand out but I've seen worse performances. I did like Martin and Ong in their roles. The rest of the cast around this offer what was needed. It just kind of feels quite generic and what I'd expect for a straight to video sequel. Someone who is great once again though is Davis. He just owns his role as his monster and I love him coming back so many times for it as he just chews up scenery every chance he gets. So I'm going to take us over then to the filmmaking. I'd say that cinematography is fine. It doesn't stand out but it falls in as well with what I've already said. This feels like a straight to video so it doesn't look great. It feels of the era. The effects we get are good at times or at least good enough. I did appreciate that. This one doesn't lean in as much as the Leprechaun's power, so it loses a bit of charm there for that. There is this odd power that it's introduced here with our creature that it can brainwash people all of a sudden. It would make sense if he had the flute, since that's what it does, but he has a trio of women that follow him. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Other than that, the music isn't good. The raps we hear are cheesy and it made me cringe. This was a letdown having that music angle be an aspect of what this is working with, because they're not very good and the music doesn't really stand out so i'm gonna do a little bit of trivia here this is the last entry to be released by trimark had the closest release date to saint patrick's day as this was released on dvd on march 28 2000 filming was briefly halted when warwick davis had chronic flatulence and again when a power outage occurred this is the fifth movie in the series although the number five doesn't appear anywhere in the title or credits director of leprechaun 3 and 4 in space brian treachard smith pitched his idea for what the fifth movie would have been, which would have the Leprechaun finding his way into the White House. As the director has noted, this his version would have seen the little imp infiltrating an oafish but well-meaning first family. As a political satire of the Clinton era, this 
was the director's favorite president. However, the studio Trimark turned it down, feeling it was too out there at the time. Kind of ironic. This was Vidaya's film debut. So then, in conclusion here, this movie isn't the worst. We have five movies in the franchise, so I'm not expecting much. There are bright spots. I'd say that this is going with the black exploitation angle is fine. It is lacking heart there, though. Ice-T and Davis are good in their roles. What I'd say is that this needed a person or two of color to kind of put more of their flair onto it. I do realize now that we did have that in the writing room, but it doesn't feel like they had enough say or something along those lines. Now, I'm conjecturing stuff that I don't necessarily know true. I just know what I'm seeing doesn't feel like there was enough of that element. It feels like the people who don't fully understand the culture are trying to make a movie and missing that spark is what I'm saying. There are good effects, but they don't go far enough what the earlier films have with that charm. This ends up feeling like a cash grab without remembering why the ones previous could be enjoyable. Only recommend if you want to run through the whole series. So my rating here for Leprechaun 5 in the hood is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section I don't really necessarily feel like I need that. So let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show just let me know in that email if you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for my next episode is going to be my next Centennial Club as I'm finally getting around to doing that one as I was supposed to be. I got some wires crossed and everything like that. So I've actually already watched the movie. The first one that's going to be a featured review, which is going to be The Stone Rider, which is the only other movie from 1923 that I could find. So I'll have that as a featured review on there. And then I think I'm going to pair it up with The Outwaters. This is one that I've been meaning to kind of check out as I heard some good things about it. Sounds interesting to me and I'll figure out how this will make a good double feature outside of them being 100 years apart other than that i'll have more mini reviews for you i'll get another traverse of the threes movie in on top of everything else that i get to watch for you so i don't think there's anything else i need to get you up to speed with here so i will say in closing is thank you so much for listening and whatever you do today i hope you're safe and doing and have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending <laughs>